Welcome to the Inspired by Adventure podcast, bringing you the adventure across the airwaves. Here's your host, Cole Watkins. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another another episode of Inspired by Adventure podcast. My name is Cole Watkins, and I'm your host. And today, we are fortunate to have uh, Dr. Wolfgang Didis, who is a primatologist and a behavioral ecologist based in Sri Lanka. How are you doing today, doctor? Hi, Cole. Nice to nice to be have you on the screen here. It's it's lovely to be here. Yes, I'm, I'm just I'm doing just fine. Yes, we're re- we're really excited to here. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I just had my dinner. It's evening time here already. I, for you are it's still morning. That's right. I just finished my breakfast. So uh, yeah, I appreciate you being on. Uh, and we're really excited to have you on. Um, some of our uh, following here at Aggressor Adventures may recognize you from the Born to Explore. Uh, episode that Richard Weiss had uh, done while he was there in Sri Lanka. But you've also been um, uh, a, a world-renowned um, primatologist, I'd say. Um, so we want to hear all kind of uh, information. We want to hear your story of how you grew up, how you grew up, how you got interested in, um, in the study of uh, primates and um, a little bit about your time in Sri Lanka and the Sri Lanka primate project and a little bit about monkey kingdom. We, we, we want, we want to hear it all. So why don't you just uh, go ahead and give us a start from where you Yeah, go. sure. Um, gee, my, I guess my interest in monkeys, it didn't start with monkeys. It was more of a, um, an exposure to nature in my youth. I grew up in uh, Southwestern Germany in a region called the black forest. And um it's, I grew up in a small town. Its main uh, sort of business was um, uh, forestry and uh, leather tanning. And um, yeah, and it was a very, it was almost like a, a 19th century kind of economic and social setting. It was post-war, of course, 1943 when I was born. I was born in Berlin and then moved to Black Forest for safety. Um, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the farmers still brought their, their milk to the to a central milk collecting facility by, by ox cart and or they went shopping once in two weeks with the ox cart to the big town. So it was a very, very kind of rural and, uh, you know, self-sufficient also. I mean, the villages were self-sufficient, you know, the, they had several bakers, they had the, uh, they had the tannery, they had the shoemaker, they had the, um, the tailor and so forth. And uh, as a child, I like to go on walks into the forest by myself. I mean, not always, but it's on Sunday morning or something when, when my mother wanted to sleep in, I would go off and into the fields. And so I had a, a, a close sort of connection with nature. And the Black Forest region is kind of hilly. And um, one of the activities that uh, my mother sort of um, engaged me in early on was skiing in the Black Forest. And my, my big adventure was when she sent me uh, when I was about eight years old to the, uh, to the Alps. And I had a two week course or three week course in, in skiing. So that really got me interested in, in, in mountains and nature. And um, I, the other thing that sort of inspired me early on in life was, I mean, I lost my, my father in, in the war. So the small town where I was brought up the neighbor, he was, he was the, uh, chief uh, chimney sweep for the, for the region. And uh, he sort of took me under his wings. Uh, he was sort of my uncle. He wasn't really my uncle, Jim, but uh, I called him uncle. And uh, he had a book on mammals. Um, and I was just fascinated to go through this book, looking at all the different animals. And he had another book on South America. I said, oh my God, you know, I really, when I grew up, <laughs> I want to go to these places. I want to see all these animals. And he used to take me on long walks also. And, you know, on Sunday mornings, the, the older gentlemen in the village would get together and they would go for a walk through the forest and, you know, end up in a little pub in a tavern and they'd drink their beer and I'd have my little orange juice or whatever, or apple juice, or whatever. Anyway, to make a long story short, I sort of, I was sort of surrounded and grew up in a, in a very rural, natural area. And then when I was 10 years old, uh, my mother decided that we should move to Canada. And um, I mean, I didn't speak a word of English until I was, well, till, till after I was 10. And so it was a real adventure going across the Atlantic Ocean in a, in a big ship. Um, 
it wasn't a, a steamer and it took about, I don't know, 10 days or so to get across the Atlantic in those days. And then the biggest thing was um, going by train across Canada. It, I think it was a four day journey and three to three overnights. And um, I was just, as a 10 year old, you know, here I was going, had an ocean voyage topped up by a train voyage across all of Canada from East coast to the West coast of Vancouver. And I, there wasn't a, a minute that I, that during daylight that I wasn't sitting in the observation car taking it all in. In those days, the steam engine, the, the engine was, wasn't diesel, it was still a steam engine, you know. And uh, so it took me through the, through the prairies, which is, well, it's all right, kind of takes, takes a day or two. And then into the Rocky Mountains, I was just fascinated by, by nature. Yeah. And then I, we ended up in Victoria or in a small uh, lumber town of Souk in, on, on Vancouver Island. And uh, I went to school in, in a rural, very rural kind of setting. And it was basically a lumber town, lumber community, but my mother was working in a hotel at, at that place. And it was, on the, it was on the Pacific coast. So, I mean, there, there, I, I had, as an, had the opportunity as an 11, as a 10 year old, to, to go wading in these, uh, uh, in these ocean, these small pools and looking at the starfish and, and whatever else marine creatures one could see there. And I remember also going through, a, taking a school bus and going through the, through a forest fire on Vancouver Island, going back and forth. I mean, these were all kind of adventures that really sort of inspired me in, 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 in the natural world. And in particular, I, I, I was um, fascinated by, by mountain scenery. And I decided early on, I'm going to be a geologist <laughs> when I grew up. I'm going to be an explorer and I'm going to be a, be a geologist. And I carried that with me. When we left Vancouver, we shifted to, uh, to Banff, Alberta for a while, which is a, which is a small tourist town in the, in, the, in, the, in the Rocky Mountains. And from there to, to Montreal. And um, so I went to school in, in, in to grade school and uh, eventually high school in Montreal. I mean, when I arrived in Canada, of course, I didn't speak a word of English. So... It was, uh, you know, he was here. I was a blonde kid. I had blonde hair and curls in those days. They're all gone now, of course. But um, and I, with my later hosen on, also, and it uh, kind of, kind of interesting. A bit of a cultural clash, also. You know, here I was a German kid, later hosen, and this was post-war, and the things were still, you know, a little. People are still a bit sensitive. So, but anyway, we we got over that. I I went to a boarding school in in, in southern Quebec, also, and. Uh, uh, you know, that's, you, you learn to adapt very quickly. You lose your German accent, otherwise, uh, you know, you're, but with my handle, Wolfgang, of course, you never really um, uh, can escape your, your ethnic, uh, not that I want to, uh, my ethnic uh, origins. But anyway, in Canada, I ended up at McGill, I ended up going to a lot of boys camps. Uh, um, and again, this was out in nature. We, uh, we built our own, we put up our own tents, we did our own cooking. And I did that as a sort of a camp counselor for several years, and then again, it, it it was it was close close to nature whenever I whenever I could be, and then entering university, I went to McGill University, and finally I I, I was achieving my goal, and I'm going to be a geologist, and I I was accepted into an honors geology program, um, which was very interesting, and then part of the McGill geology program in those days was if you if you're going to graduate with a degree in geologist you need to you need to work at least two summers for some geological company as to get the experience and I did that. I had the good fortune to do that as well so um, but that then kind of turned me around a little bit because being out in the being out with a professional geologist I happened to I was lucky the head of the Department of Geology one professor Stevenson, he was uh, the head of the, the International Nickel Company um, Geological Exploration Division, as well as being the head of the Department of Geology at McGill University. And I was, had the good fortune to be one of his researchers, one of his assistants, his assistants. So, I mean, I really had the best kind of exposure that a young man in geology could have, but something in geology just didn't click with me. And I think it was the, uh, the, the company structure uh, and they sort of, they assigned you what you're gonna do, how are you, how are you gonna do it? I 
felt kind of railroaded in geology. Um, I didn't, I wanted to go to university to expand my horizons, not just learn about physical chemistry and geology and petrology. So I switched out of that program and I took general science and that allowed me to take things, other interests that I had, anthropology, I took, I took genetics and I took biology, I took zoology. And I noticed when I'm in the field, I, was, <laughs> I, would, I would be happy to look at fossils, but they weren't any up in that part of the room. But it's nature that really interested me. So um, I eventually ended up you know, doing psychology and, and zoology for my undergraduate. And then I, I pursued that for a master's degree at McGill University as well. And, and I did a study on the development of song in cardinal birds. Now, when you go out into the field and, and listen to cardinals, you'll notice that the, they have the song pattern differs from one region to another. In other words, they have dialects. Now a dialect means that they're probably learning their song. So it was my mentor at that time, <clears throat> um, Dr. Bob, Bob Lemon, he uh, assigned me a, a project where I would uh, look at the experiment with the development of song in, in Cardinals. You take, I, I robbed little baby birds from the nest and I exposed them to a tape recordings of songs of cardinals and from different regions. And lo and behold, eventually these little birds, they, they learned to sing the song that's on, their, that's, on the, uh, that's on the tape recorder that was played to them when they were young. So it was actually a good, good introduction to this nature nurture problem that we have in the development of behaviors. It really gave me a, a good insight into how behavior is developed with the genetic component and the and the learned component that they pick up pick up from the environment, and I remember at McGill University it was very much renowned for the psychology department, and we had seminars, and in those days psychology was still very much sort of uh, in the learning mode, the Skinner box and so forth. They focused everything, you know, focused a lot on learning, and the ethological. The European school, Conrad Lorenz and Nick and, and, and Tinberg and, and Carl von Frisch, uh, this sort of the, the sort of instinct kind of uh, uh, behavioral school was just beginning to uh, be, be appreciated in, in North America or, or at McGill University, and it was my in these seminars. I remember. I was sort of known as the instinct man because my my arguments would always be from the zoological perspective, whereas their arguments would be from the purely psychological perspective. It was really it was really a good good experience. Anyway, it got me interested in animal communication. This exposure with uh, this, this, these experiments with birds, and I had the opportunity. Either I'm going to a look at the neuro, neurophysiological uh, underpinnings of learning in birds, which means coming up little bird brains at, at Rockefeller, or what I really wanted to do, I wanted to look at communication in, in the most sophisticated animal that there might be, which is a primate. So I wrote around to different people, and I mean, to make a long story short, one of my professors at the University at the McGill recommended me to his colleague at the Smithsonian Institution, and they were having a program in Sri Lanka, in Ceylon in those days, and they were looking for another student to do the macaques, which, and <laughs> it was offered to me. And I said, yeah, Salon, that's great. Now, living in Montreal, you realize it's kind of a cold climate. I looked on the map, where's Salon anyway? Ah, oh, wait, it's six degrees above the equator. That's the place for me. That's where I want to go. So, so that's how I ended up in Salon. It was serendipitous, uh, um, just at the, wrong, at the right place at the, at the right time. And um, yeah, so... And my mentor was saying, again, I mean, none of this ever happens by yourself, you know, I mean, have other people helping you and guiding you. And I had a mentor, his name was John I. John Eisenberg. He's a famous mammologist uh, uh, in the United States, in the United, well, globally, actually, um, the late John Eisenberg at this point. And um, he uh, gave me this assignment here, you do the talk macaques. Now, it was interesting. I was, this is that, I was enrolled at the University of Maryland, which was the closest to the Smithsonian Institution in, in Washington, DC. And normally a PhD student before there's giving it all, before they're allowed to go, go ahead with their programs, they have to write up a proposal, which is then evaluated by, the, by, the, by a committee of professors. And luckily I was able to escape that. John just said, come to Ceylon, I'm here now, start the program. In retrospect, 
had I had I proposed to my to my professorial committee, my PhD committee, what uh, what I, I eventually ended up doing, it probably would have flunked totally. It would not have accepted. They said, "You can't do that sort of thing. It won't it won't work." But anyway, long story short, I arrived in Salon, and the and my assignment was to quote do the talk macaques. Now this is I was not given you know here here's the protocol. You're a PhD student now. You figure it out. It was almost like a like a 19th century assignment, you know? I mean, here is the species, you do it. And what you do with it, I've given, I'll give you all the rope. You can go along with it or you can hang yourself with it. So um, there were other people in the world who were studying macaques and I feel like I have to do a good job on this one. So I, I ended up doing three and a half years worth of field work on these macaques, which was unusual. I mean, most, most um, a graduate student projects in those days in the 60s, there were six months, maybe a year at maximum in India or in Africa or South America somewhere. And here I took three and a half years and I was able to take the three and a half years because the funding from the Smithsonian and was, was available. Uh, these were quote, quote unquote PL480 monies. The, the, the American government um, sells wheat or other services to a country like uh, Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan, whatever and they can repay the United States in the local currency. And what happened in this case is the US embassy or the State Department had tons of Sri Lankan rupees, which were sitting there and not being used to pay their, pay their embassy staff. So they invited the Smithsonian Institution to come in and study the elephants, do an elephant survey. But John being a mammologist, he said, well, elephants are very interesting. He actually studied rats when he was for his PhD. Um, but he had a broader perspective in mammalogy. So yeah, elephants are interesting, but you know, we really want to do the primates as well. And the Sri Lankans said, primates? No way. <laughs> and primates in Sri Lanka are like, they're, they're considered like stray dogs or worse than that. They're not particularly fond, they're, fond, they're, they're considered as pests. But so John said, well, okay, fine. Uh, no monkeys, no elephants. So the Sri Lankan government capitulated. Said, okay, fine, we'll tolerate you doing, elephant, doing primates. So we started off as a students being tolerated by the Sri Lankans doing, doing the primate studies. And the money was there and I took three and a half years to do it. Eventually, I mean, I had to go back and write up my PhD thesis. But having three and a half, having three and a half years of data and knowledge and close intimate contact with these monkeys really gave me an insight, insights into their behavior, which put me probably a little bit ahead of the, well, at the, at the cutting edge of the science in primatology at that time. So I was able to come up with good grant proposals to do, do more research uh, on, the, on, these, on these monkeys. Of course, what happens when you graduate from a university, um, they, People want you to go and join, be a professor at some university, teach in a university, and I just—that's well, just not me. I didn't—I didn't want to be confined to some classroom talking, to, you know, sitting around committees and discussing when the when the lecture lecture hours should start and all that. I mean, it's not me. You know, I, I went back to Sri Lanka on my, from a national with a National Geographic grant in 1975. This was. And I left there in 72, we came back in 75. And in the meantime, I had a research assistant who I kept going in Sri Lanka, maintaining some observations. And I was just you know, at my field site and I asked myself, would I rather be out here <laughs> or would I rather be um, in some university uh, teaching in the teaching position? And there, there's just no question as to what I wanted to do. So I, I turned, uh, I mean, that, that was rather a, a turning point, a rough decision to make because you're basically giving up a uh, relatively secure, potentially tenured university position uh, for a career which is dependent upon getting research grants and doing good research or get the research grants and, could, and, and do the research, but, and do the research, but that's what I wanted to do. I found these monkeys so fascinating and the, the, the questions that I had answered, had I sort of posed initially, they were coming up with some really interesting and, and unique answers, which was, which was just intellectually stimulating and scientifically stimulating for me. So I, I returned to Sri Lanka and I just built up the program 
with grants from the National Science Foundation, National Geographic Society, even the German government gave, gave some, managed to get some monies from them, them as well. So I, I sort of had to piece it together year by year, two years, two years at a time, getting grant monies here and there just to continue the research. Yeah. And the value of the research is that, you know, we have, have I'm sorry, I'm, I'm really going on here. <laughs> it's fascinating, but I do have some questions right off the bat. Um, for, for the people that don't know about the toke macaques, can you tell us a little bit about that primate? What's, what's, oh. what, I know I, I want to get into it further down, but what was kind of like their scouting report when you were getting that assignment? Sure, sure. The toke macaques are, well, they're like, uh, they're, they're related to the rhesus macaque in, in India, which many of you may know, and to the long-tailed macaques of Southeast Asia and a little more distantly related to the baboons and the guanins of, of Africa. And they're not really related to the South American primates at all. So they're what we call the family Circupithecidae, baboons, macaques. And uh, they're uh, small animals. And the, the ones I've studied anyway, they're about three to five uh, kilograms, uh, six to 11, six to 12 pounds. And they're about, yeah, about the size of us a little bit bigger than a domestic domestic cat. They have long tails. They've got red faces and lots of markings in their in their face with black pigment spots and scars and so forth by which you, you can identify them. And they're 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 one of four species that you find of primate that you find in Sri Lanka. Um, we have the uh, a representative of the uh, Madagascar kind of uh, uh, suborder of uh, primates, the Lemuridae, the, the prosimians. So as we have a slender loris, which is a small nighttime monkey with big eyes that are active at nighttime. And then we've got two full livers, two leaf eating monkeys, the uh, Hanuman or the gray langur, which many of you know from, from India, um, and the purple faced langur, which is uh, uh, dark fur and they live on the treetops. Uh, so the, we have all four species at the study site at Poland Rua, which is where I work, they're all living in the same place. They're, they're sharing the same environment. They're, uh, yeah, they're, they're endemics. And the macaques are found, all these macaques, talk macaques are found only in Sri Lanka. But by studying the talk macaques, you're actually studying a, a kind of monkey that has a wider application, you know, across the, the primate, the primate primate order in some cases even, even man interesting and uh you also said earlier on that you wanted to focus on an animal that was more complex and that primates are the most complex why is that well probably if i were considered if i had continued ornithology um i might have had a different opinion say crows are pretty smart too you know um but yeah no i mean they're because they're they live in social groups, which is challenging okay. uh, intellectually for them, uh, behaviorally for them. Um, they need to memorize, remember lots of the foods that they found. They need to, in the social, the social groups, they need to remember who all the individuals are in their group and who, who are strangers, who are friends, who are enemies. So it gets to be pretty complex socially for them. And um, they have a, a fairly complicated um, um, uh, pattern of communication with vocal gestures and body postures, facial gestures by which they communicate. And that was my initial interest actually is to look at the, uh, the language, so to speak, that these animals have. But what happens when you're out in the field, now you have to imagine here I am coming out of Montreal, you know, Canada, and I'm in the jungle of Polonarua and I enter a group of monkeys and I'm supposed to study these things. And, and you know, when you walk into a monkey group for the first time, number one, they run away. Number two, things are so complex. I mean, the things that you learn in school about communication theory, you know, H prime value equals such and such a formula. That's, a, you know, how much, how much information content there is in the signal. It goes out. It doesn't even, it doesn't even come anywhere near what, what, what you're looking at. So you need to try to figure out, first of all, what it, what it is that, what they're communicating about, if you're interested in communication. And what you find is that 90, they spend 90% or 80 to 90% of their waking hours looking for food. That's what occupies them. 
okay, fine. So they're talking, maybe they're talking about food or about the relationship to the food. So that means, well, I really ought to learn all the plants. Oh yes, I sort of did a study on the on the forest ecology, learning all the plants and how the forest actually behaves, because the forest is the stage or the environment in which these macaques uh, behave. It's sort of like a Shakespearean play. It's not just the actors; you also have the surround, the context in which they, in which they, yeah, in which they, uh, which they operate. And you need to know that in order to make any sense of what their behavior, their social behaviors, and their communication behaviors are all about. So. Yeah, so I looked at, um, began to broaden my view, not just communication, because communication per se was just too narrow a focus. It doesn't, it doesn't really explain anything to me. What I need to, I need to know what, what the, their daily activities, what challenges them, what their predators are, how they react to predators, how they, what foods they, what they feed, and so forth. Yeah, Great. a little more complicated than I anticipated. But so I'd also took a little more time to collect all the information to make sense out of all this. Right, right. All right. Well, all right. So back to the story before I interrupted you. So you've you've got your PhD now from Maryland, and uh, you just spent you finished your three years there in Sri Lanka. Uh, what happened next? What was the plan next? Well, coming back to the U.S. with my data in hand and running at my PhD, I uh, basically. Um, sat at the Smithsonian at the National Zoo, had an office there, and that lot, it gave me the, the, the privilege of writing up my thesis, my results, and I was supported financially for doing that. And I had a brief stint in Panama uh, to look at howler monkeys and to work a little bit on sloths, uh, which was interesting. But my passion really, me, my interest really was to get back to the talk macaque study in Sri Lanka, because I was, in a sense, I felt I, I was ahead of the game a little bit. Uh, because that's already invested three and a half years of study in these animals, so I thought I'm a little. I can I can ask questions, and my study set in Polonru that I can't answer anywhere else. I had the opportunity to head up a primate program in Brazil, um, lucrative, lucrative, tempting, but I would have been. It would have been an administrative position eventually. You know, sitting around managing people, and it wouldn't have been so much being out in the field with monkeys and asking the interesting scientific questions. It's more, it's a nice job, but it's not exactly what I wanted. I wanted to stay with the science and actually um, test, come up with hypotheses and test them. And uh, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. So did you wind up moving back to Sri Lanka then? Well, yeah, in 19, you know, I wrote up grant proposals and I finally got some money from the National Science Foundation and from the, the German equivalent of that. And that gave me enough money to start uh, the program again in, in Sri Lanka in 1977. Um, the problem that I encountered there is that the Sri Lankans, uh, they weren't uh, of equal minds as to what to do with me. Um, they wanted to, I came in at a time of political, I wouldn't say turmoil, but during the election time, prior to the elections. And uh, um, I was suspected at that time of being a, coming in with money from the Americans, coming in with money from the Germans. I was suspected, I didn't know that at the time. I was just asked to leave the country, basically get out. Okay, And this was kind of, I just got married as well. My wife Anne was with me and we were in Sri Lanka and all this research money finally we're doing where we can really go. Um, had the money from the Americans, I had to go. And Sri Lanka said, no way, you can't do, you can't work here. Um, and that was rather uh, a bit of a shock, yeah. but we managed to get around that, having friends here and there. And uh, after the elections, after Mrs. Bandaranaike was defeated, she was sort of anti-Western in some ways. Um, I managed to, to stay on. Um, but there have been challenges like this along the way where um, the project or primatologists or foreign scientists weren't particularly welcome here. And uh, they were asked to leave. And there, we had there were three incidents actually where we were asked to leave. We managed to surmount those and, and, stay, and stay on. So it's not just a financial challenge of how to finance the, the research, it's also how to deal with it politically in a foreign country as a, as a foreigner. So we managed, we managed somehow to overcome those obstacles. 
And, you know, I like Sri Lanka. It's, um, I like the food. I like the climate. <laughs> Most of the time it gets very hot sometimes as well. But, um, and I like the people, I like the culture. Um, so, and I have a great, uh, what I've considered to be a great research project. It still keeps me going. And um, yeah, so that's great. basically in a nutshell what I've been doing. Well, tell us a little bit about the Sri Lanka Primate Project. Well, the Sri Lanka Primate Project started with, uh, with uh, Suzanne Ripley, a sociologist out of Berkeley. And she was the first one here to study the gray langurs. Uh, she was here in 1963, I believe, and she went through the riots in 65. So always, we were always challenged by local political insurrections. Uh, and she then joined up with John Eisenberg, my, my mentor from the Smithsonian Institution, and three or four other primatologists, uh, a Claude Ladique and a Annette Ladique, who had uh, from the Museum Natal in, in Paris. Uh, they had studied um, primates in Africa and in Panama. <clears throat> then we had Ted Grand, an anatomist out of, uh, out of Oregon. He wanted to look at the locomotor behaviors in, in, in the primates. Um, so I was, as a student, I was really in a, in a very privileged context of, uh, of senior scientists, uh, prim three primatologists, four primatologists, there's also Gilbert Manley from, from London Zoo, and then of course John Eisenberg himself. Um, and these were all good field biologists. And at the time, the Smithsonian Institution also had other projects going on here, the Flora of Salon project, which means they brought in specialists, botanists from all over the world to study, to update uh, the uh, taxonomy of local plant species. So we were able, to, as students, we were able to rub shoulders with these people as well. And you learn something about botany and, and their perspective. So it was really good practical schooling. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, in the world, I couldn't have asked for a better, a better sort of career training than being amongst these, amongst these people, these people who I really respected. They were senior, senior uh, biologists, botanists, and ecologists. Also Dieter Mueller-Dombois from, from Hawaii was there as an ecologist. Um, so there are lots of, lots of learning opportunities uh, for, my, for myself. And uh, I mean, I had also two, two students as well as peers, uh, uh, George Mackay, who studied the elephants. And then there was uh, Nancy Muckenhern, who did the langurs and Wilpatu in langurs and, and, Le and, and leopards in Wilpatu National Park. Um, yeah, so we, we had a good, good foundation and that, that, was, that was very inspiring to me. I mean, I, could have had a better sort of foundation from input from 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 mentors, multiple mentors, so to speak. Sure, sure. Well, um, I also have a note here. I, I want to talk about uh, Monkey Kingdom. Can you explain to our watchers what that was and your part in in that? Well, uh, what, the whole Monkey Kingdom thing started a lot earlier. It started actually with Marlon. You remember Marlon Perkins, the Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom. Remember those programs on TV, Mutual of, sponsored by Mutual of Omaha, Monkey Kingdom with, with uh, Marlon Perkins. And um, in those day, way back when, when I was still married uh, to my wife, Anne, we sat around the dinner table and her father, who's a businessman, said, you know, you guys ought to be on TV in, 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 uh, with Marlon Perkins show. I said, oh, sure, sure, of course. He phoned him up. <laughs> and if you, my stepdad did, <laughs> and uh, and uh, later on, not stepdad was a father-in-law, father-in-law, father-in-law. Yeah, sorry. Um, and uh, Marlon Perkins then eventually came out to Sri Lanka, and we did a program uh, for my first TV program. And that was really interesting. I realized how stiff I am in front of the camera, and he was so fluid. He just he was just a natural in front of the camera. But anyway, that then put us on the map. I think for for other producers, you know, when producers look, they, they also have a budget and they want to have success. And they know that if they come to my site, they have a success story. So that then the BBC came with, oh, the, or, you know, that the natural world. Temple Troop was the next biggest film that we did with uh, Mark Linfield as the producer. Uh, that was a great story. I mean, probably the best nature film that's been made in Sri Lanka. I mean, I don't want to brag about that. It really is the best nature film that's been made in Sri Lanka so far about uh, yeah, non-stop. What is that one called? And, uh, 
Um, it was called uh, in 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 the uh, Eastern and European world. It's called Temple Troop, and in the United States, it's called Monkeys of the Temple Forest or something like that. So sort of changed the title a little bit. But it's a 1978 production, and it was put up by the BBC and was picked up by public by national public great NPR by. I don't know who I don't know who picked it up in the U.S., but somebody did. Um, but anyway, that then. So the Temple Troop experience uh, with um, with uh, Mark Linfield and the photographer at that time was um, was Gavin Thurston. Um, they came again with um, um, David Attenborough. They did a program again for the, with the BBC on the macaques. So my, the reputation for the site and the monkeys and our ability to help film producers sort of um, got enhanced, got, got progressively better. I mean, so far we've had about 40 different documentaries made, um, including the one uh, that we made with, uh, with, with Richard, with Richard Weiss. But anyway, uh, with that sort of portfolio in hand, then uh, Disney approached uh, Mark Linfield or Mark Linfield, the producer approached Disney uh, for a production in Sri Lanka for the Monkey Kingdom and, uh, and Disney bit and they came out and they spent three years here um, taking, uh, uh, recording the footage necessary for this kind of film. And, you know, when you say it takes three years to make a documentary, I mean, it's, it's taken me 50 years to begin to understand a lot of these monkeys, but three years is, um, it's a long time for a documentary. It's a big investment. And uh, Disney is probably one of the few companies that could actually afford to do that. Yeah. The BBC wouldn't be able to do that much. They did 18 months and that was enough for them. Um, but you see, any uh, any filmmaker can come for a few days, three days, and they can film grooming, they film feeding, all that's there. But there's some sort of pivotal moments in a monkey's life which really um, make a big change in their life. And you need to be in the field with the monkeys. You have to invest the time to capture that particular moment, which is significant in, in the story. And that's why it took such a long time to make, uh, to make Monkey Kingdom. Also, we, when you film, <clears throat> we, weren't, we weren't just filming any macaque monkey. They were focusing on, on specific individual characters, which means that, um, you had to follow a specific monkey and that monkey wasn't always in the right light and didn't always have the correct social partners for the, for, the, for, the, for the particular scene that you're trying to make. So it's a big investment. The other thing, I mean, the monkey that we focused on, her name is Maya uh, in, in the film. Uh, that's her stage name. Um, and um, uh, she was sort of, a, we had to select her because she was sort of young, she was still good looking. If you have a close up of her, you know, in a, in a, in a movie theater, whether you have a three meter high, three yard high screen, if that monkey is ugly and old, kids are gonna run out. So we had to pick a monkey that's kind of good looking. So we picked Maya. She was a reasonable good character. She was habituated to us. We've been following her earlier. She knew us, so she wasn't shy with us or the camera. And, um, and you also need to have other characters to fill to fill to fill out the the palette the palette of, uh, of of this for the story, um, and and they also took a risk. The filmmakers took a risk. Now, what what happens if uh, Maya happens to die one of these days? Then we invested all this footage, all this time, but so we always need to have a backup to Maya. Film it with Maya, and then film a similar sort of thing, whatever you can get with another monkey who that can be substituted for Maya in case Maya happens to die any day, any any part, any time soon. So it was a it was a it was a major, it was a major investment, and actually, uh, two of Maya, um, excuse me for a minute here. I'm going to ask these fellows to come up. Yeah, we'd love to meet them. Yeah. Uh, they were, they were, um, I mean, the film was made with, based on the knowledge that we had accumulated about these monkeys over the many years of research. I mean, that was one attraction. The other attraction was the site itself is nice. It's an archaeological reserve. You have, it's sort of a Rudyard, a Rudyard Kipling setting of Jungle Book, which is actually the original intended name of the film. 
Um, you had the archaeological ruins of temples and palaces, you had the forests, and you had these lovely monkeys, you have water holes, you know, you have streams. So it was a, a, a very lovely setting. Uh, and the other thing, of course, we knew so much about the monkeys and the monkeys were habituated. I mean, habituated means that if we approach them with a the camera, they don't, they don't run away. They were so used to us. They were, these monkeys, many, many of them were born with us at their, in, in their environment. So they sort of ignored us just the way we wanted them to ignore us. We were sort of like a deer or a cow or a tree in their environment. You shouldn't be responding to us. And that's exactly what you want if you're gonna make a documentary or if you're gonna do a scientific study. You don't want the animals to be reacting to you. You want them to go about their natural ways. So this was attractive also for the film, for the filmmakers. So um, um, based on that then, um, they decided to, to, to invest in us. And two of the fellows who were out in the field, come, come, uh, Sunil, this is uh, Sunil to my left, and Chamira Patiratna on my right. These two fellows were actually the driving forces for the Monkey Kingdom film. If it weren't for these two fellows, a Monkey Kingdom film would not have been made because they are the ones who actually brought the monkeys to the, in front of the camera. They instructed the cameraman where to go, what to film. They alerted them to when an interesting behavior was going on. And unfortunately, in the credits of Disney, they don't give, you know, I mean, they talk about themselves, their film, the cameraman, all this is good. And the musical score, all that should be credited. But these two fellows were actually key to the monkey, to the making of, of Monkey Kingdom, uh, along with, you know, the information that we had. That we had. So I was very happy to, to, uh, to engage them in that particular project. Yes. And still today, these are my two, my, the two key fellows who are working on the monkeys in the field. Why? Well, I, I spend most of my time in front of my laptop um, analyzing data uh, from the years in the past and new information that these fellows are bringing in from the field about uh, the monkeys. Now, Chamira, he's been working more than 15 years or so. How many years is it, Chamira? You, uh, 18 years. 18 years, okay. Chamira's been working on the talk macaques for 18 years and Sunil must be 15 years. Is it something like yes, that? 14. 14 years. And Sunil has been working on the purple-faced langurs as well as the gray langurs and all, both of them actually know the macaques inside out as well. So, and they also, they're also active at nighttime. They follow the lorises at nighttime. And when the, when your aggressors are fiery, uh, people send their guests to us for, uh, for monkey observations. They go out into the field at nighttime with Chamira and Sunil uh, to, 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 see, to see the lorises. And uh, anyone who comes and does it, we offer the public daytime tours as well, monkey tours we call them. So on these monkey tours, we spend about two hours or three hours in the field and we visit the three different diurnal species, the macaques, the gray langurs, and the purple-faced langurs. And we explain to the general public, you know, whoever wants to participate, all the lovely uh, information that we have about, about these. It's not just there's monkey A, monkey B. We right. tell them a lot about the social behavior and what it's all about, yeah. yeah. These guys are key in doing that. I think it would be great to hear from them. Maybe if we ask them, uh, if they tell us their favorite interesting facts about their particular monkeys that they study. Is that something we could do? Yes, of course. Did you did you get that? Do you have a favorite monkey? Um, do, do you have a favorite monkey story to tell to the to the audience? We would love to hear that. Or Sunil, do you have a favorite monkey story to tell? I mean, they have uh, the many, but they are. So the they come to uh, the shoulders or groom. It's kind of a scary, but uh, yeah, it's also kind of therapies, you know. Monkey, wild monkeys in the shoulders, they groomers, and uh, so that is the first time I get experience in the field when I come to join the project. So that is a remarkable for me. Okay, very cool. Yes, that's good. <laughs> Jamira, do you have anything good to tell about the monkeys? Mm. I'm sure you must have some good monkey stories about maybe some captures or some uh, some rescues. What about monkey rescues? Yeah, actually, uh, uh, we found some uh, wounded monkeys uh, in the forest. Then uh, uh, we treatment them and we, we release his own groups. Uh, 
like that. One of the uh, one of the services that we're known for in the local community, for better or worse, is that whenever there is a problem with monkeys, they come to us for a solution. And unfortunately, a lot of times they bring us a, a monkey that's injured, or and we have to somehow make sure that it resuscitated and then release it back into the forest. But it gives us a a good calling, a good reason to be here in this local community. We do they also do outreach programs and teaching and teaching children about nature, not just monkeys, and uh, it gives us a good good footing uh, in the local community. Um, monkeys, as you may or may not know, they can be. Uh, most people perceive them as pests because they they raid their houses and their food stores and their fruiting trees. So monkeys are not always liked. So it's our job to try to impress upon people that monkeys are more than just pests. That you know they have a they have a social life. They're grandmothers, their mothers, their uncles, their aunts. They're, they have a family life just like we do, just on a different scale. That's all. And. And these chaps, they are, they're, they're conversant in the local language, Singhalese, and so they can explain this to the local population much better than I can. I see. I see. Well, I'm glad you brought them in. It was great meeting you guys. Yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Dr. Adidas, I still have a couple questions for you uh, to talk about. Um, I do want to hear a little bit more about um, your experience with the macaques and some of your interesting uh, stories and and uh, some of your favorite things. Just tell us a little bit about the macaques as far as things you've learned over all your, you said 50 years of studying them. Tell us more about, you know, and, and one thing I really want to ask is how are you guys able to track these guys? How do you know that you're watching Maya or, you know, a different monkey? How are you guys able? Oh, to well, luckily this species that, okay. If you're going to do a study on social behavior in, in primates or even in humans, you need to know individuals. You need to know animals as individuals. Uh, only then can you make sense out of their social life. Uh, mother, son, uh, brothers, uh, friends, not friends, enemies, red faces, the males don't. Okay. They often have black lip pigment on the lower lip and that lip pigment pattern varies. It's either thin or it has a pattern. Then they have blue eye, blue eye, sh eye, eye shadow in the females. And they have uh, black and red spots in the faces, which have different, which are different parts of the face. So we we uh, we make an identification card. Can I pull out an identification card and show you, or what? is that going to be too much? Is that all right? If I get up. And pull. Yeah, here, for example, is a picture of Dommy, the male called Dommy. And you see he's got black lip pigment. He's got red and black spots in the face. Uh, he's got a cut in the ear on the left here up there. What else he's got? He's got a spot on the spot on the uh, spot on the eyelid. Yeah. And they also have very variable hairdos. So and then we have I have sort of developed a way of uh, systematic at describing these variations. So once you make an ID card, like once you go through a process of making an ID card like this, you actually commit the the, the animals looks to memory, and then you have the card as a backup, as an identification card as, as a backup. When you're doing these focus, when you're doing these studies on social behaviors, you need to be able to recognize an animal instantly. You can't just say, "Oh my goodness, now who's that?" and pull out the card. By that time, your, your behavior is over. You, know, you just need to be able. You, have, you need to memorize the looks of these animals immediately. And over the years, we've identified over 5,000 individuals. But that sounds like a horrendous. It is. It's a huge number. But that's not what you're confronted with when you start. I mean, the group is about uh, 15 animals or 18 animals. Okay two of which are adult males, four of which are adult females. So it narrows it down. So at any one day, at any one point in time, you're confronted with maybe uh, 15 to 30 animals and you can, you know, they, they differ in age and size and, and gender. And you learn, learn to tell them apart very quickly. Like a school teacher going to class for the first time, you know, um, they all look, you know, you know within, by the end of the day, the teacher knows all the individuals by sight. Yeah. And uh, we don't even need these cards anymore because when you look at a monkey, there's something that happens to the human brain. The whole gestalt sort of uh, uh, forms a memory for that for that particular individual. So 
And once you get to know the individuals, then you can begin to ask questions as to, you know, do they have favorite grooming partners? What's the relationship between grooming partners? Or do they, are they biased against certain individuals in their feed, in their feeding, in their feeding, in feeding competition? Um, and what we found out very early on in this study, which was sort of really surprising to me, and I couldn't make sense out of it for the longest time, is that the group structure really seemed to be odd in the study groups that I've found. The, um, they had, a, they, I mean, amongst the adults, there's more females than males always because growth differences. Amongst the juveniles, it should be because they're born, the sex ratio at birth is one male to one female. So you expect amongst the youngsters to be 50-50 ratio, but sure. there isn't. A lot of these groups, they had, a, they had a dearth of females. There are a lot more young, young juvenile males than there were juvenile females. And um, in my first group, I said, this is odd, I can't have, I'm gonna to go to another group where there's more balance. The next group had the same problem. I went to three, four, five groups and the problem was consistent. I said, hey, there's something going on here. So I did an entire population survey. Yes, indeed, juvenile females and infant females consistently were fewer in numbers than the males, which means actually that they're dying off at a greater rate than the males are, than their male peers are. And why would that be? Well, it's because the alpha, these, these animals really, their survivorship depends upon access to food resources. And the food resources are very, very limiting. If you look at a, if you look at the population structure over many years, the number of animals in, the, in a group goes up and down, up and down seasonally. But over a long period of time, I mean, during the birth season, the number of animals increases, then there's a die off, numbers decrease, next birth season up and down, it's up and down. But if you look across the average across many years, it's, uh, it's steady, it's a zero population growth. Now, that really is odd. Zero population growth means that for every, every individual that's alive, it replaces itself in the population, but only one of its own offspring. Now a young female, for a female might have a mother, for example, she may have, she may give birth to six or seven or eight infants, but on the average, only one of those survives. Now, how, how is it determined which one of these survives? Well, in a mechanic society, it's very structured, um, hierarchically structured. You've got the queen or the highest ranking female, so to speak, and she has priority of access to all resources. If she wants to eat something, she wants to sit somewhere, she goes there, takes it, and the subordinates all run away. Now what happens is for the, it's to the advantage of the queen so to recruit her own daughters into this competitive society, to survive in this competitive society. And she does so at the cost of the females of lower ranking females. So the highest, highest ranking females, she's pretty nasty. She discriminates against the daughters of low ranking females. And, and the consequence of that is that the daughters of low ranking females die at greater rates than do the daughters of high ranking females. The same discrimination is not afforded to the males. Because the males, if the males, the young males, they don't constitute a long-term threat to the, to the larder of the high-ranking females' daughters. These males eventually emigrate. They leave the group at adolescence. It's a mechanism to prevent inbreeding. So these high-ranking females are not so nasty towards the young males as they are towards the young females, because the males, they, leave, they emigrate anyway, okay. eventually. So that... And that's, there are other complex things going on as well, but that is one reason why, uh, one of the things that we found out early on is that these behaviors, these, these aggressive behaviors, these competitive behaviors, they're not random. They're very structured and they have a very profound effect on the social structure and the population structure of, of the population. That's what happens in a growing, sorry. That's fascinating. Now, is there also an alpha male or is it just that yeah. they so the alpha male is there, but the alpha male, well, I mean, the alpha male has priority of access to all the resources, yeah. But the, the alpha, the, 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 um, the males, okay, because all males leave their natal group at adolescence, so to speak, that means that the adult males, the mates, the fathers in the group, they're immigrants, not closely related to the adult females in the, in the group that you're studying. So, okay. And um, their main concern, yeah, they, I mean, they take food from anybody, from, they're the dominant, they feed. They take, they exploit others for food as well. Uh, but their main interest is really getting access to the estrus females to inseminate them and, and desire, desire offspring. And, um, 
and the males compete amongst themselves very strongly for, for this sort of privilege of mating rights. And they have serious battles. They have long canine teeth, about an inch, inch long, inch and a half long, two and a half centimeters. And they act like they're daggers, for, they're weapons uh, for slashing the muscles of, com of competing males and maybe even killing them. So the adult males, they don't, they don't last as alpha for very long, maybe, maybe three, four years as alpha. And then they sire their offspring. Then eventually one fight, they lose a fight and then they're, they're evicted from the group. <clears throat> The females, in contrast, their, their hierarchical relationships are steady for long periods of time, even decades. So the whole family, the high-ranking female, she gives her rank, socially inherits her rank to, the, to her daughters. So the matriline, that same family, is reigning in the group for, for, many, for many, many, many years. And they're upset sometimes, but the pattern is that females uh, have long-term hierarchical, <clears throat> steady, constant relationships, whereas the males, it's pretty, pretty uh, uh, fluctuating. It's, it's fascinating. And do the, the females have, or do they, what's the average lifespan actually of, of a cat? Well, the longevity, they can live to be over 30 years, but the average lifespan is only about six years. And that's because so many of them die before adulthood. So a good way to look at lifespan is, how many more at birth, how many years can an can a animal at birth expect to live? And the average of that at birth is about, uh, what is it? I think it's six, it's six years. Um, when it's about three years old, it's life, because so many have died off, its life expectancy is greater. But by the time it's reached five years, a monkey that survives to be five years old, a female monkey that survives to be five, she can expect to live another 11 years. And after her 10th year of life, then her life expectancy goes down. So it's a bell-shaped curve. Life expectancy onset is low. Then as many of your peers die off, your life expectancy increases to a peak, a young ad adult. At you, <clears throat> when the monkey re reaches its prime life at, in young adulthood, that's when it has the greatest remaining life expectancy. But that then declines gradually as socially and economically they were ecologically they were they're worn down and at what age in that bell curve is the the prime the adulthood how, how old for well for female she reaches yeah she has her first birth at about six or seven years but she really becomes most competent by about nine years a male doesn't really become fully grown until about nine or ten years old and some facial features it's even 11 years old that they're not fully grown so a male really, it, it takes a long, it takes many more years for an adult, for a male to be adult than it does for a female. It takes many more years, and it's another way of saying that, it takes many more years for a male to mature to reproductively so that he can sire offspring than it does a female. A female will start a reproductive career at about six years, a male maybe at 10 years. Are the male and female, do they look the same as far as muscle structure or is one gender stronger well males are larger in skeletons until they have their more muscular but i mean generally their musculature is, is equivalent except that allometrically the males are structured slightly differently they have bigger bigger snouts bigger uh, jaw muscles and so forth okay but, well uh before we wrap it up uh anything else We're, this is this has been a very fascinating call i'm i'm, I'm having fun every minute here but uh, I, I wanted to ask if you have one particular monkey that you kind of keep in your mind, either living or the one that's passed, that is, is one that was special to you in your heart. Yeah, I mean, when I, I used to spend a lot more time in the field at the beginning of my career. And then, uh, you know, I've got, I mean, I used to follow these animals from dawn to dusk. And there is a female called Judy, which is the second ranking male, second ranking female. She was a favorite. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, she was good looking for one thing for a macaque monkey. Um, <laughs> and she was a kind of bossy um, and uh, relatively tolerant of other females. And she was also sneaky um, in the sense that um, she, we had a, a situation where two groups merged and um, the highest ranking female from a low ranking group was sort of taken over by group A, which Judy was. And Judy would take the initiative and approach and hug the um, deposed 
alpha female from this other group that, that emerged with it. And it looked very much like a very sort of um, positive, gentle kind of gesture. Except if you look closer, what Judy was doing, yes, she was grooming this other female, her name was Tok. She was grooming Tok, being very kind to her and, and uh, integrating her into the group. Um, at the same time, whenever Tok's infant came to suckle her mother, Tok, Judy would come and rip the head away from, uh, the infant's head away from Tok's uh, nipples. In other words, she was okay to Tok, but she, would, she didn't really want to have her daughter uh, competing with her own daughters in, the, in that group. And her way of doing it would be to ingratiate herself with Tok, but then be nasty towards her infants. So, I mean, just a, and I had other other males. I have a male a male I called not so, for example, because he was not so courageous, not so cowardly. He was not so anything. He was just a model, a mediocre kind of male who somehow somehow made it through life. <clears throat> you know, these high-ranking males, these alpha males. I mean, they're all blustering. You know, uh, and fight and spit and muscle. Uh, but because they're, they engage in a lot of conflict, they're also short-lived sometimes. And you're better off sometimes being a second-ranking male, giving way. It's all a matter of winning reproductive opportunities. A high-ranking male um, comes in and he sort of takes over and he chases everybody else. And yes, he mates with the females one after the other. Uh, at some point in time, he's going to get wounded. The second-ranking male, he takes it easy. He's, he, makes a, he makes a career out of being a second ranking subordinate, like a vice president, let's say. Um, and uh, he lives longer and his reproductive career, reproductive success at the end of many years is just as good, if not better than that of the high ranking alpha male. And simply because he lives longer, he has more opportunities to make. He may not win every contest. He give up a lot of contests, but he looks forward, yeah, well, I can live another day. So he's these, are diff these males have different, yeah. He's not being challenged as much, is, right. is that right? As well, well? He, he's challenged, but he, he gives away. He, he, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't um, challenge back. He okay. says, yeah, okay, I'm supporting you. Okay, you, 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 you take it. It's all yours. It's all yours. Well, how, how does that make him this, the second alpha then? If he's, if he's still kind of, uh, if he's well, still second, se second rank. Yeah. So is that, is that different than, I guess, being the alpha? Well, the alpha male, I mean, is you, you always have rights of access to everything. And as a second ranking male, or you have rights of access to everything except to all other overall, all others except for the, the highest ranking male. So he's, uh, and when it comes to mating success, of course, there, there aren't all that many females available at any one time, maybe two, maybe three, maybe only one sometimes. And the alpha male gets the first choice and he does the matings. And the second ranking male has to sit back and, you know, okay. Um, wait for wait for another opportunity. So, yeah. I don't know if that explained it or not. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, this is this is uh, I'm learn learning a ton of stuff. Um, you know, we do need to talk about uh, your experience with aggressor and 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 how you um, what you guys do exactly with the aggressor safari lodges there in Sri Lanka. Well, the aggressor safari lodge is not at our site. It's at a different place. It's up near the near national park called the Wilpatui National Park. Um, but we have a reputation for doing excellent tours on lorises and monkeys. So uh, they send their clients from that part of the country to our place, and we we give the tours on the lorises or or the monkeys. So that's the extent of our involvement with the with the aggressor safaris. So they, they send us clients and we sort of take good care of their clients. Very cool. That's the extent of it. Mm -hmm. well, very interesting. Well, uh, Dr. Didis, it's been great having you on today. I've learned a ton. I could talk to you for hours, I feel like. <laughs> well, thank you, Cole. It's been a pleasure being able to come here and speak my, say my piece. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, hopefully... Um, do you have any interesting stuff that you're studying at the current moment that you'd like to tell us about? And maybe we can have you on in a couple months and, and get update on. Uh... Yeah, there's always something interesting going on. I mean, um, uh, gosh, we're looking at um, tooth eruption and tooth wear. We're looking at feeding strategies and use of cheap monkeys are these cheek pouches, you know. And there's a really good story about how the cheek pouches are used and who you and why they're used and, uh, and to what circumstance, how, how cheek pouch use increases feeding efficiency. 
Um, then there is uh, nursing behavior, um, uh, weeding behaviors. Um, in zoos, for example, uh, most infants and macaques species are weaned by about six or seven months. But out here in the field where, where the uh, environment is a lot harsher, mothers continue nursing their, their, their offspring till they're about 10, 11, 12, sometimes 18 months, which is two to three times longer than happens in zoos. And there are all sorts of interesting um, strategies that the females use uh, under, under the conditions of, of the field where uh, things are a little tougher than, than they are in, the, in, in captive settings. Um, uh, we have studies on communication gestures where they have different, different vocalizations have make different purposes. We have one, one communicative gesture, which is a sort of a semantic signal, we call it in the profession, semantic in the sense that it conveys information, not only about the emotive state or the mood of the animal, but it actually conveys information about an events or an object in the environment, whether that happens to be, a famous one would be against, uh, there's a special call for a snake, a special call for a leopard, another call for a raptor. Uh, or another call when there's a bounty of food and all these and animals don't have to see what's going. They don't have to see the raptor or the, the predator. You just need to hear the sound and it tells them exactly how to respond to it. Um, to, a, to a snake, for example, they will rally around and look where the snake is. So that pythons, for example, hide, hunt, hide, hunt by stealth. So if all the monkeys know where the monkey is, that's the game is over for the, for the python. Or for a leopard, well, you'd want to um, get up a tree or for a raptor, you get under a tree. Um, so, I mean, there are these vocal signals that are, that are of interest. Um, yeah, there's... It's like having, you, having an open book right here talking to you. So I really appreciate you being on. And um, I, I want to see if we can have you on again later in the year, maybe... See, get an update on what else is going on and hear some more stories. Sure. Okay. Sure. It'd be great. All right, guys. Well, let's wrap us up. Dr. Ditas, I appreciate All right. uh, being All right, Cole. Thank you very much. I yeah. appreciated the opportunity to talk to you and talk to your audience. I hope yeah. you learned something positive about the monkeys. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure this is going to be a great uh, episode and people are going to be uh, signing up more for the Safari Lodge. So maybe some people will get to meet you uh, in person sometime. and. To, uh, yeah, great. Learn a little bit more about the we'll see these fellows firsthand. Yeah, that'd be great. Why is still living? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, guys, well, that's going to wrap us up today. I appreciate y'all watching us uh, uh, here on another episode of Inspired by Adventure Podcast. And we will see you guys next time. Take care, Dr. Diaz. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning into the Inspired by Adventure Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you haven't already, please subscribe through iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time.